Mo, Big Mo. It's just kind of fun to say, isn't it? I think so. Say it. Say Big Mo. Thank you. Y'all got to participate a lot today, all right? We, uh, we're talking about momentum, and uh, we're talking specifically about how you can sustain spiritual momentum. Because we said that, that uh, life is a bunch of ups and downs, highs and lows, and, and what we're trying to figure out is because Jesus also suffered highs and lows, but he maintained a laser-like focus on his Father in heaven, and so we can learn from Jesus how to have spiritual momentum no matter what the circumstances we're going through. Well, we decided to, to test a few momentum myths. And uh, so we got a couple of, of videos back-to-back here. The first one is momentum myths, and then there's kind of an intro into the message today. Go ahead, Ashley. Moses is one of my favorite characters in the Bible, and we can learn a lot from his life. And today we're going to look at momentum. Specifically, we're looking at spiritual momentum. How did Big Mo get and maintain spiritual momentum? There's got to be some secrets in the Bible about how an ordinary person like us can seize onto God's plan for our lives and experience more than the ups and downs that we face every day. Everyone faces ups and downs. Jesus faced ups and downs, but he was able to maintain spiritual momentum. So we're going to learn from the life of Moses today how you can get that momentum and how you can keep it. Whenever you open up the scripture and you begin to read about Big Mo, you'll learn that he wasn't focused on his life whenever God decided to use him. He was focused on God. So when you search the scriptures, here's the pattern. God is the focus of the scriptures. Jesus said, my father is always at work and I too am working. So the big idea, if you want to have spiritual momentum, is figure out what God's doing and join it. So when God shows up in the scriptures, he always shows up to tell people, to tell human beings what he's about to do. When he tells you what he's about to do, that's your invitation from God to join him and be involved in his work. So spiritual momentum comes from involving yourself in God's work, not in your own work. The scientific definition of momentum, the symbol for momentum is P. So momentum equals mass times velocity. In order for Zach to give us a, a, a better demonstration, he actually has to get some velocity to go along with his mass. Now, what we're going to talk about today is Moses. And, and what I want you to understand is where Moses was when God showed up. So we've got a picture here. This is a Google Earth picture. And let me kind of show you a couple of things here. All right, my handy laser pointer. 
I use this about twice a year. Now, you see this area right here. This, in Bible times, was called Land of Goshen. When the Israelites went to Egypt, they became slaves in Egypt. Now, before they became slaves, they settled right there in the land of Goshen because that was a fertile land, and they stayed there for 400-plus years. Now, it's from the land of Goshen, that's where Moses was, right in there, whenever he killed the Egyptian. You remember, he goes out and he, he refuses to stay in the court of Pharaoh. He goes out and he sees that the Hebrews, the Israelites, are being mistreated by Egyptians. He feels bad about that, so he takes matters into his own hands. Right there in the land of Goshen is where he kills the Egyptian. Pharaoh hears about it. Pharaoh doesn't like anybody in his kingdom being killed unless it's a slave. So an Egyptian, he gets upset, he tries to kill Moses. Moses, being uh, not real clear on the word of God and God's work in his life, Moses runs all the way right here from the land of Goshen through this mountain pass up here. This is called the wilderness of Paran. He runs through that all the way over to here. Now, you didn't have cars, right? So when we're he ran away. This is called the land of Midian. Now, in the land of Midian, things were going pretty well, and, and Moses became a shepherd. Um, he got married, had a child, and if you ask Moses at this point in his life, when he's over there in the, in the desert of Midian, if you ask Moses what his plan for his life was, he's like, man, I got it all. I've got the American dream before America existed, you understand, but I'm, I'm, I've got a decent paying job, I've got a wife, and I have a son. What else is there that I need? And it's at this point that God shows up. Now, the Bible tells us that when Moses was um, pasturing the flock, because his flock is over here, what do you do when you're uh, a shepherd is you, you go around where there's green grass and where there's water. So at this point, there was nothing over here. The Bible says that he goes west over into this area in the wilderness of Paran. Now, it's at this point that God shows up and totally messes up Moses' plan. Now, we don't know for sure if Mount Sinai was here. Traditionally, it's down here. It's one of these places. We don't know for sure. I think part of the reason we don't know for sure is God didn't want us to worship the mountain where God showed up. God wants us to worship the mountain. My brother went to uh, Spain, and he showed me some pictures last weekend of, of his trip to Spain. Everywhere anything significant happened in the Bible, they've built monuments to the event, not to the God of the event. And so I think part of the reason we don't know exactly where Mount Sinai is is because God didn't want us to build a monument to the monument, to the mountain. He wants us to worship Him. So Moses is down here somewhere. We're going to say it's here because that's the traditional site is down here at the bottom in the Sinai Peninsula. Moses is here when he sees the burning bush. And he says, the Bible says, I must turn aside and see why this bush does not burn up. If you saw a burning bush that was on fire and it was not consumed by fire, would that capture your attention? Sure. So he goes over and he talks to a burning bush. Actually, the burning bush talks. That's the second miracle in the thing. The bush talks to him and he says, take off your sandals, Moses, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And so God says, I'm about to do something, Moses, and I want you to be involved in it. And how did Moses respond to God's invitation? Did he say, oh, cool, God, I love what your plan is. I shall join you. He gives him eight million excuses why he shouldn't be the one to go. He gives him so many excuses that God gets upset with him. And he says, okay, this is what's going to happen, but you're going. And Moses goes, yes, sir. So here I want to look at a couple of things, actually six things from Moses' life, some principles, because what I want you to do, what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks, we look at the Scripture, we find out patterns in Scripture. The, the Bible is our authority. In fact, it's our sole authority. If the Bible says it, we do it. If the Bible says don't do it, we don't do it. 
So we're going to look at the pattern of Scripture over these next several weeks, figure out what God does, how he relates to his people, and then we're going to hopefully figure out how we're supposed to respond to that. First thing, God always has a plan. God always has a plan. When God explained his plan to Moses, was Moses' plan relevant? Moses wanted to have more babies and raise more sheep and get rich and, and hang out in the land of Midian. That wasn't God's plan. So God always has a plan. A couple of weeks ago, we said that God's plan is always bigger than our plans. It's always harder than our plans. And it's always more fulfilling than our plan. But Jesus said, my father's always at work. He said, I too am working. God always has a plan. And you can bet your bottom dollar, whatever that means, that God is always working his plan. He doesn't work your plan. He doesn't change his plan for you. God is always working his plan. He always has a plan. Number two. God always takes the initiative. When Moses was in the uh, wilderness of Paran, was he seeking God? No, he's seeking green grass and water. But who shows up? God. Who, who took the initiative? God. God always makes the first move. The Bible says no one seeks after God. Let me just give you some examples of this. Romans 3, 10 and 11. Paul is speaking here and he says, As the scriptures say, no one is righteous. Not even how many? One. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. So how many people seek God on their own initiative? None. Not even one. Jesus said it this way, John six forty four. For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. How many people just kind of out of their own curiosity discover God? None. Jesus said the whole idea of even thinking about God comes from my father. So his father is always pursuing a relationship with human beings. You search the scriptures. I double dog dare you to find a place in the scripture where it does not say that God makes the first move. Even in Romans and other places. Paul says, God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So before you ever come to God, before you ever seek God, God is seeking for you. And, and by the way, you never discover God's will. You don't stumble onto God's will. It is revealed to you. So here's the difference in living by reason and living by revelation. Reason is, I think I can do this. I see this. I think reasonably I'm sure that I can accomplish this. That's living by reason. The Bible says, though, that God is pleased when we have faith, and that's when we live by revelation. So God reveals himself to you, and then he expects something from you. God always has a plan, and he always invites people to join that plan. Well, then here leads us to step number three. God always tells us step one. God always tells us step one. Let me give you a practical application here. Now, several weeks ago, I mentioned possibly going to Haiti. And, and I was really trying to figure out if this is what God was leading me to do. I just had a, a, a burden that, we were, that I was supposed to go to Haiti. And I said to you that, that your response to, to that kind of prompting was going to help confirm whether I was supposed to go or not. And so about 20 or so people uh, responded to that. Now, there's scheduling conflicts and there's all kinds of conflicts. And I know some of you can't go and, and you're not supposed to go. But some of you, I know the only reason that you reacted the way you did was when I told you it was $1,500, you said it's impossible as if God is limited by your bank account. That's asking the wrong question. And we've said this over and over. When you ask the wrong question, what do you get? 
the wrong answers. The, the right question is, what is God's plan? If God's plan is for you to go, then step one is you say, okay, I'll go. Step two comes later. In fact, God doesn't even bother with step two because step one is a test. We'll get to that in just a second. So if the only consideration you had about whether you should go to Haiti or not is how much it costs, you're not supposed to go because you don't understand how God works. God moves, God reveals, and you say yes to God or no to God. Now, honestly, not all of us could go. I, I totally understand that. So I'm not trying to pile guilt on anybody. Please understand that. But what I'm saying is our theology is messed up if we think that, God is, is, that our theology is tied to our bank account. God has already provided some miracles for some people to go, and they had no idea, and I guarantee you, if they'd not been willing to go, the miracles would not have happened. Now, you know that's right. Shandy can tell you some some, uh, examples of God working. So step one is a test. God's not even going to bother giving you step two until you obey step one. Now, It doesn't have to just do with Haiti. There's other things God has called you to do. Some of you know you had a word from God at some point in your life. And here's the thing about God. God's not going to give you step two until you go back and obey whatever he told you to do in step one. Step one is a test. So if God tells you to do whatever it is to do and you don't do it, God says, I'll find someone else to do it because you're not obedient. And and so what you do, if it's been years since you heard from God, you go all the way back to whatever you last heard from God. You continue to do that until God reveals the next step of his plan to you. Does that make sense? You do not discover step two until you obey step one. Well, that leads us to number four. God always expects immediate obedience. Now, when God shows up in the scripture, God always tells someone his plan. In the Old Testament, it says God does nothing without first revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. So God tells someone about that plan. God always tells someone. When God tells them, that's not for information. Oh, by the way, you just need to know this. God always reveals himself because he expects you then, when he tells you the plan, he wants you to adjust to that plan and become a part of his plan. God doesn't tell you for you. God's telling you that is your invitation to join his plan because his plan is bigger. His plan is to to do something through you that you cannot accomplish so that he gets the glory. So he expects immediate obedience. Now, when God reveals his plan to you, you have an all in or fold decision. If you know anything about Texas Hold'em, all in means you are betting on the hand in front of you. You're betting before even the rest of the cards are, are turned over. You're betting everything you have on that one hand or you're folding. And God says, when I give you my plan, it's an all in or nothing deal. God says, I'm not even going to bother with the rest of it if you can't trust me with this. So it's a test. And if you want spiritual momentum, momentum, you obey when God shows you his plan and you keep obeying until God shows you a different plan. Because in James, it says that God does not change like shifting shadows. It says every good and perfect gift comes down from the father above who does not change like shifting shadows. God is the same yesterday. He's the same today. He's going to be the same tomorrow. The way he related to his people in the scripture is the same way he relates to people today. God wants a relationship with you that is real, that matters in your life, that is very practical. Those who have said yes to go to Haiti and people are beginning to pay their way. Do you think that's a practical application of God's love for them? If they didn't even know someone was going to pay their way and they get their way paid, that's very practical, right? So don't tell me that God does not relate to his people in a practical way today. 
The problem is we rely on 10 or 15 years ago when we know God said something. That's the last time we encountered God. God wants to encounter us on a daily basis. But spiritual momentum means I obey step one. I keep obeying step one until I come to step two. Now, this is real important because when Moses finally says yes and goes back to Pharaoh, (laughs) if you know the story, he goes back to Pharaoh and he goes, God says, Charlton Heston, let my people go. And he's assuming in his mind, whoo, Pharaoh's going to say, yeah. And Pharaoh goes, I do not know this God. Nope. And in fact, he said, because you're asking, they must be getting lazy. I'm going to make it harder on those slaves. They're going to have to keep making their quota of bricks, but I'm not going to provide them straw for their bricks. They got to go gather their straw, continue to make the same quota of bricks. I'm going to make it harder so that when Moses left Pharaoh's presence, he goes out to his, the Hebrew people. It has become harder on them. They are despised in the eyes of Pharaoh. They say to Moses, you have not come from God. You've made it harder on us. Leave us alone. So Moses goes back to God and look what he says in Exodus 5:23. Ever since, i got to say this in a whiny voice. Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. And when Moses comes back to God, do you know what God says? Time for step two. You obeyed step one. Step two. See, God's plan is a journey. He gives us one step at a time. Obey step one, then you go to step two. Somewhere around step 22, Pharaoh finally let the the children of Israel go. And and there was this huge sigh of relief and the the people celebrated, yay, we are going to get free and everything's great. You know how long that celebration lasted? About two days until the people thought that God wasn't moving fast enough for their calendar, so they get ticked and they start complaining. Well, I want to show you this. Look at this picture. This is a comic strip, and and this is actually uh, not Family Circus, but it's obviously based on Family Circus because there are copyright issues. But someone did this. Do you all remember this little uh, journey? Like mom would say to the the son, go and tell your sister it's time for dinner. And so he would go, and, you know, he runs around the telephone pole, and he goes in somebody's house, goes in truck, jumps over a doghouse, jumps through the pen, goes over the the, uh, lawnmower there, and eventually he gets to his destination, and it takes forever to get there. Well, the reason I bring this up is because this comic strip actually demonstrates spiritual reality. It actually demonstrates a theological truth. And, and the theological truth is God takes you on a journey. Let me, let me read this to, to show you. God said to Moses in Exodus 3.8, I will bring my people out of Egypt into a country where there is good land rich with milk and honey. So it sounded like a really simple plan. Out of one country, into another. Two steps. Step one, out of. Step two, into. God would deliver them and it was just going to be good. It couldn't take that long either. Because if you look at a map, and I'm going to show you a map in just a second. If you look in a map, once you left Egypt, all you had to do was go the shortest route from Egypt up to the promised land. It was maybe 200 miles. And there was even a major highway. It was the king's military highway. From Egypt to uh, the promised land, the highway of the Egyptians. Actually, it wasn't the military highway. It was the highway of the Egyptians. No county road, no 4404 or 404 or whatever county roads that you've been on around here. This was the best maintained road in existence at that time. And they could make the trip in just a matter of weeks. But God had a plan, right? And God had a different plan. 
And look what it says in Exodus 13, 17. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them on the road that runs through Philistine territory. He didn't take them on the Egyptian highway. Even though that was the shortest way. God knew that was the shortest way. He knew that was the shortest way from Egypt to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. God took them on what one pastor called the roundabout way. Now, look at this. I've got a picture here of the route of the Exodus. Why did God do it? See, there's the shortest route up there toward the land of the Philistines. This is the promised land. God leads them this way. And then up here. And this is Kadesh Barnea. And that's when the spies said, oh, 10 of them said, no, we can't go in because the land is too big. And so then they went more over here and up here. And and it looks kind of like that family circus journey, doesn't it? Now, why would God do that? We know that because of their rebellion, the roundabout way got a lot longer than it had to be. But God took them on a journey. And just imagine, you're the Israelites. You've been waiting for over 400 years. You know from God's word that you're going to get free someday, that he's going to raise up a deliverer. You're going to get to go to a land. You've read it in the scriptures. Everybody's told you about it from your birth. And you're praying for that day. The day finally arrives. You get lined up. Huge celebration. You're about to go to the promised land. And, and you didn't have to worry about directions because God said, we'll, I'll go, I'll direct you. So there's a pillar of cloud and fire. And all you have to do is follow the pillar of cloud and fire. And so you take your first step. And, and the pillar, oops, don't do that one. The pillar goes south. We're supposed to go northeast. Oh, no, the pillar is directionally challenged. What are we going to do? See, Moses' directions from God weren't very specific. God says, follow. He didn't say which direction he was going to go. He said, I'll lead you. You follow. One writer said this the first time in history when a wife said to her husband, do you know which way you're going? Are we going the right way? And he replied, God only knows that he was speaking simple, literal truth. First time in history. Now the question becomes, here it is. Question becomes, will you follow God even when you don't understand? Will you follow God and believe he has a plan and believe he loves you and believe that he's going to take you on this journey even when you don't understand and you can't see the next step? God takes his people to the promised land by way of the desert. That brings us to number five. And here's the truth. If you had not learned this yet, you will. God's plan always leads through the desert. You remember how long Israel spent in the desert? Forty years. And for whatever reason, 40 is a significant number in the Bible. And it's often associated with the desert. When Moses killed the Egyptian, how many years did he spend in the desert? Forty years in in the Midian desert. When Elijah ran in fear from Jezebel, if you've read any of the Old Testament, you know about that. He was led into the wilderness on a journey of 40 days and 40 nights. Ironically, you know where Elijah ended up? Mount Sinai, the same place where Moses met God. Just a little bit of trivia there. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, as soon as he was baptized, do you remember what happened? Do you remember where he went? The wilderness for how long? Forty days. To be tested, to be tempted by the devil. If you ever get serious about your relationship with God, you're going to learn about his roundabout ways. 
You'll go through times when your heart is broken with hurt or loss. There'll be times when you sleep, but even sleep does not refresh you because you're just uh, tired down in your soul. Times when you want something good to happen and it seems like God could answer your prayers so simply, so quickly, and he doesn't. At times like these, even faith is hard. You pray and God seems far away. The Bible's no comfort because when you read it, you don't hear from God. You are dry all the way down in your soul. You're not just in the desert. The desert is in you. If you've ever felt this way, it may be because of deliberate sin. It may be because of a series of choices that you knew were wrong, that you knew would lead you away from God. You chose to do it anyway, and you may be in the desert because you chose to be in the desert. If that's the case, then you've got to confess it. You confess it to God, and then I'm going to tell you, the Bible says, confess to one another. You confess it to a group of tr- Christians you can trust and let God lead you out of the desert. But sometimes, sometimes the desert seems to come out of nowhere. Again, this is the pattern of Scripture. When you're in the desert, all you have to hold on to is the promise of God. God has not forgotten you. He's not abandoned you. Because remember, God always has a plan. And his plan involves the desert. And number six, God always uses the desert to strengthen us. God's plan involves the desert because the desert's where we're going to grow strong. Why does God take his people on the scenic route? Well, God always has a plan. And the Bible tells us, it actually tells us in this situation, in that, in that verse. It says, if they go on the direct route, if they face any opposition, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. Because the shortest route, the shortcut that they wanted to take, and all of us want to take, y'all ever plan, you know, your GPS and, and do you want to go the shortest route? Of course. I want to go the fastest route. I want to drive the speed limit on the fastest route, but I want to get there as quickly as as I can. The direct route would take them past people who were hostile to them. And because of their fear, their lack of faith, God says, I'm not going to take them that way. They're too scared of everything. Someone once said it took one night to get the Israelites out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. Not too long into the journey, people are complaining. Moses is instructed to go up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. This is in Exodus chapter 20. And, and by, by the way, this mountain is so thick, the description, it's a great description in Exodus. The mountain is so thick, when God comes down, it says that there's a cloud surrounding it, a thick cloud that you can't even walk through. There's thunder, there's lightning, the mountain shakes whenever God's presence is there. And the people are standing at a distance. They look up at the mountain and they say, oh, no. And they say, direct quote to, to Moses, you go talk to God for us because they realize God's a holy God and they realize they were not holy people. They said, you talk to God for us because if we talk directly to God face to face, he will kill us. Moses said, okay, I'll do that. But right after saying that, Moses goes up on this mountain, stormy with the presence of God, spends 40 days there. And these people who'd lived through 10 plagues in Egypt. You remember them? Last one was death of the firstborn, the Passover. They'd crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, watched Pharaoh's army be destroyed, who had drunk water from a rock on a couple of occasions, who at that very moment were digesting this miracle called manna. Remember when they started complaining about bread? God says, okay, I'll give you manna. Manna actually means what is it? Because they came out and there's this white flaky substance on the ground and they go, what is it? And that name stuck. They were digesting the miracle of manna. 
These same people either got bored or impatient or rebellious or jealous or apparently they forgot all about their God. Because while Moses is on the mountain meeting with God, getting the Ten Commandments, these people are having a raucous worship where they build a golden calf and they say, this is the God who led us out of Egypt. How can that happen? Ten times on this journey in the desert, ten times, they complained against God. Even at the border of the promised land, they complained against God. Philip Yancey is one of my favorite authors. We're going to put this quote up on the screen for you. These dismal results may provide insight into why God does not intervene more directly today. Some Christians long for a world well-stocked with miracles and spectacular signs of God's presence. I hear wistful sermons on, on parting of the Red Sea and the ten plagues and the daily man in the wilderness as if the speakers yearn for God to unleash his power like that today. But the fall of the dots journey of the Israelites should give us some pause. Would a burst of miracles nourish faith? Not the kind of faith God seems interested in, evidently. Here it is. This is what I want you to get. The Israelites give ample proof that signs, miracles, may only addict us to signs and not to God. If you read the passage, you'll see very quickly they turn their back on God. God provides food today. When they complain that they didn't have meat, God would send millions of quail to just stand on the ground and be captured <laughs> so they could have meat. And even the Bible tells us in God's plan, he said, I gave them the same thing to eat for 40 years because I was testing them to see what was in their hearts. Desert times are those times when I don't get the promotion, I don't get the house, I don't get the success, the reputation, or even the health that I wanted. Then I find out whether I love God for God's sake or because God does what I want Him to do. Now, God taught them some lessons, some great lessons, the Israelites. This was about 4,000 years ago, but the lessons are still relevant today. It's one of the ways that I know that the Bible is supernatural because the lessons are relevant for all times. Here's some things he taught them. First, God met the Israelites' needs, not their greeds. Don't know if you know the story, but God said, when you go out in the morning to collect the manna, he said, get enough for one day. Well, these people don't follow orders. So the first day, several of them gather enough for two or three days. The next morning, it was rotten. There were maggots in it because God says, no, I told you enough for one day. God met their needs, not their greeds. And the interesting, interesting thing is, if you know about the Sabbath, one day a week, they were not supposed to work. So the day before the Sabbath, God gave them instruction and said, gather enough for two days. Now, if you're one of those people that gathered for two days the, the time before and there were maggots in it, what are you expecting to see the next morning? Maggots miraculously, when God says to do it the next day, there were no maggots. So every time on the, on the day before the Sabbath, they would collect two days. Every other day, one day. This is a spiritual principle. God provides for today. Now, I don't think God's against us planning as long as it fits into his plan. And as long, I mean, that's why in James it says, if the Lord wills, if it's God's plan, I'll go and do this in Haiti. If it's not God's plan that I go to Haiti, I'm not going to Haiti. If it's God's plan that we should build a new worship center in three years, then we're going to build God's worship center in three years. If it's not God's plan, we're not going to build it in three years. Do you understand the principle? God provides for today, and we try to fit everything we are and everything we plan into God's plan because it's all about God. It's not about me. 
Second thing, God provided for daily needs no more. Third thing, God remains faithful even when they complained. How many times did I tell you they complained on the way? Ten times. Do you ever complain? Do you ever whine about your circumstances? God always remains faithful. Next one, whenever God leads, he provides. I'm watching God do miracles in people's lives. As they follow his plan. And see, don't ever ask what is God's plan for my life. That's getting the focus in the wrong place. Do you see what what that does? That says, I'm the most important thing here. You say, what is God's plan? And then the next question is, how do I fit into that plan? It's all about God. Last one is, God is always more interested in our holiness than in our happiness. God is not nearly as concerned with where you go as with who you are when you get there. God was preparing a nation to rock the world and eventually provide his son through their descendants. As goes the father of the nation, so goes the next generations. As goes the father of the homes today, so goes the next several generations. As go the fathers in our church, so goes the next several generations of our church. God must mold us into people that are focused on God and say, here's my life, use it however you wish. And if you need to take my life, it's all about you, God. I'm living for you. God rocks the world with people like that. You know where we learn all these lessons? On the roundabout way, not on the shortcut. Some people die in the desert because they refuse to listen to God. A whole generation, everybody over the age of 20 um, that, that was in the nation of Israel died in the wilderness. They didn't get to go into the promised land because they refused to follow God, except Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who said, oh, yeah, God said we could do it. We can do it. Joshua becomes the leader of the generation, the next generation. And Caleb takes the, the biggest, baddest city. And, and uh, that becomes his city because he said, I'm 85. I'm just as good now as I was back then. God said, I can have this hill. I want to take this hill. And so guess what? Dude took the hill. It's Hebron in the promised land. I named my son after him because I said, I, I like that dude. Caleb's one of my favorite men in the Old Testament. I said, I want to have a son He'll do what God tells him to do. Thousands of people through the years have died in the desert because they've turned their backs on God. And my word to you today is some of you in here, you're going to die in the desert because you refuse to follow God. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because those who wait for God in times of trouble, I got a promise from God's word for you. God's plan was that when you come out of the desert, you're humble. Look at Psalm 18:27. You rescue those who are humble, but you humiliate the proud. God's looking for humble people. And you get humbled in the desert or you die in the desert. There are only two reasons to be in the desert. Either the Holy Spirit led you there. Holy Spirit led the pillar of fire, led the Israelites to the desert. Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit. And look what it says in Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted there by the devil. God has specific purposes for wilderness desert experiences. 
So if you're in the middle of the wilderness, ask yourself, am I there because God led me there? If I'm there, then I endure until God leads me out. But if it's not the Holy Spirit that led me there, there's only one other option for you being in the desert. And that's that you chose to be there. You're in the wilderness because of your sin. Those are the two options. So I've got to ask you, which, which is it if you're in the desert? If you're in the desert right now, I want you to consider praying this prayer. Lord, I will wait on you. I don't understand. I don't like it. But God, I'm going to wait on you. And if you're in the desert, let me give you some suggestions. By the way, if you're not in the desert, you're going to be someday. Or you're going to know somebody who's in the desert. Let me give you some suggestions on how you handle desert times. First is share your dryness or confusion with another person. For whatever reason, that's why God has invented the body of Christ, the family of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church. God wants you to share your burdens. Because in, in Galatians it says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Now later in that verse it says, everyone should carry his own load. That just means the regular stuff of life. But yesterday when, when we had the funeral for Hal Langston, I want to tell you, I was so pleased with the body of Christ. When I showed up here for lunch, we hosted them for lunch. And, and Charlie had said there were going to be about 50 people here. About 80 people showed up. And God multiplied the sandwiches. Because my wife was so worried the whole time. I'm like, well, just go get some pizza. And we said, oh, let's watch. And Sandy said, she was back there. I, I told her, I said, God multiplied the stuff. She said, well, I was praying that the whole time. I knew he was going to. And, and so there were people outside with umbrellas, opening doors, going to cars and escorting people in. When we needed more tables, more tables came out. The body of Christ functioned unbelievably well yesterday because Charlie is struggling with the love of her life being put in the ground. Bearing one another's burdens means you give selflessly in times of need. And you did that. And I was never more proud to be called the pastor of New Life Community Church than yesterday. Because you showed up, you served, and my heart overflowed with gratitude as I drove off this parking lot yesterday. Good job. God has designed us to need each other. And you, you met that need yesterday. If you're in the desert, you share that with somebody else because there are people in this church that will help walk you through the desert. Number two, you ask some trusted friends for intense prayer. And by the way, don't go to some idiot who pretends to be a Christian and ask them to pray. I don't really need to define that. You know what I'm talking about. You find people who know God and you see God in them and you say, I'm sucking wind. There's about three or four people that I go to when I'm sucking wind. Because I know they love me and I know they'll pray for me. A friend of mine, a few weeks ago, when we even started the series, the Building a Great Life series, I said, man, I am being nailed. Would you pray for me? He said, dude, I got you covered. One morning I got up and before I preached, I got a text. said, I just prayed for you, bud. Go get them. This next one's big. Refuse to go back to Egypt. I don't know what Egypt is for you. But Egypt is wherever you used to be before you met God. It may be alcohol, it may be drugs, it may be sex, it may be power, it may be... It may be you're a donkey's butt. I don't know where Egypt is for you, but you do. Refuse to go back to Egypt. Because all along the way, the children of Israel said, Oh, if we could just die in Egypt... 
If I could just be a slave again, I would be happy. Do not go back to Egypt. Next is find things. Here's, here's a big key. Find things, even small things to be thankful for. There, there was a song years ago and, and it said, you know, I'm not who I want to be. I'm not who I ought to be, but thank God I'm not who I was. You, you make progress up that spiritual mountain and you don't look down on others that are lower than you. You thank God for, for bringing you where you are and you say, God, keep me on the journey. And then the last thing is don't panic. God always has a plan. We forget that, don't we? God always has a plan. And the real question is, am I in on his plan? If you're in the desert, then then you ask God to help you. If you're not in the desert, then you need to ask God to train you for when you will be. In Deuteronomy, Moses is about to die and he's giving his final instructions to these Israelites before Joshua takes over. Deuteronomy 8, 2, he says, Remember how the Lord your God has led you in the desert for these 40 years, taking away your pride and testing you because he wanted to know what was in your heart. He wanted to know if you would obey his commands. God wants to know what's in your heart, and he only finds that out in the desert. So what's in your heart? What has God found there lately? Once you take your registration cards and and flip those over to the back, and I want to ask you to write down. If you're in the desert, you don't need to tell me in the desert. You write on there, Lord, I will wait on you, and I will pray as hard as I know how to pray this week for you. Because I've been there. I've been there in the last seven and a half years in this church. Been there, it seems like, at least once a year. If you need to be reminded that God has a plan, then you write down, God has a plan on the back of your card. If you need to be reminded that God initiates, then you just write down, God initiates or God pursues. If you need to be reminded that God tells us step one and maybe you haven't been obedient to step one, you just write down, step one. God and I will know what that means. If you know God's called you to do something and you've not obeyed, then you write down immediate obedience. And maybe you just need to be reminded that God's plan always leads to the desert. You just write desert. Ask some of you to write down, Lord, I will wait on you. The rest of you, I'm challenging you to write this down as your prayer to God, as your commitment to God today. Lord, I will obey. You're not saying I will obey if you do this. I will obey no matter what you call me to do. I'm ready. I'm all in.